I will be picking up in Revelation and actually finishing it today. Can you believe that? Well, we haven't gotten there yet, so don't hold me to that. But I plan on finishing it today. This is the end of our study in Revelation. This is the end of the end. And it's really the beginning of the end for us, right? If we remember in Revelation that it's not the end for us, it's the beginning for us. In fact, it's unfortunately the beginning for everybody, those who are resurrected to life and to death. There's still eternity in front of us. That even when this is over, I'm sorry to ruin it for all the nihilists, it's not over. There's more. And today we're going to see in our last study, and the time is near, I am coming soon. The title is I am coming soon. And we're going to look at the last uh, 11 verses, 12 to 21, 9 verses. Jesus says, I am coming soon three times in this chapter. Three times it's said. Reminds me of when he says in the, in the Gospels, verily, verily, or truthfully, truthfully, I say to you. He's repeating something that's very important that he doesn't want us to miss. These are the last words of Jesus in the Bible. These are the last words of Revelation. This is the last book of the Bible. This is the last page. Next week, don't worry, we're not going to be studying the concordance. But this is it. This is the end. And he says, I am coming soon. I get in a sense in a way that uh, it's repeated three times, almost as if the Trinity... The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are telling us, don't worry, Jesus is coming back. And he's not just coming back in a long time. He's coming back soon. He's coming soon. He's telling us to be ready and to be waiting. It reminds me of Acts 1, 9 through 11. It says, when Jesus had spoken these things, while the disciples watched, Jesus was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly, I brought this up last week, Toward heaven, as Jesus went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up to you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And this is the moment that they've been waiting for. Jesus to come back soon. They thought it was going to be pretty literally soon, that they could stand there and their neck might not even hurt before time he comes back. He was just, uh, you know, my wife and the, the girls ran out to go to Bunko the other night. And they left, and then a minute later I saw the truck pull back up, and they, uh, Mia ran in to get something that she forgot. I feel like the disciples thought that was Jesus. He was just running to heaven, and then he, he forgot something up there, and he was coming back. So it's been a little while for us. It's been 2,000 years. But keep in mind that Jesus said he's coming back soon. It's soon. It's not going to be too long. 2,000 years might seem long to us, but that's still soon to the Lord. And even then, if you and I live to 80 or 90 by the time we die, that's pretty soon. And I think as we look around in our day and age, we see that it's going to be sooner rather than later. I think it's going to be, you know, I'm not claiming a day or anything, but I really think it could even happen before the end of the decade. I think it could happen before I die. You know, it's soon. It's soon. It may not. You know, if God is gracious, it won't. But man, I, I don't expect it to. But if we look back at Revelation as we close out, I just want to look back at it one more time. Remember John on the island of Patmos? Jesus was revealed to him. That most of all, God wanted to reveal himself, reveal the church, reveal the end, and reveal heaven to John, the, the beloved disciple, to the church, his beloved church, and to us, and even to the world. The world that God says he gave his only begotten son to the world that he loved, right? To die for them. That he wanted this revealed to them. He didn't want things to be hidden. And so often in religions... Things are hidden. You have to be a priest. You have to speak Latin. You have to be Tom Cruise and spend millions of dollars to get to the top level of Scientology before things are revealed to you. You have to do works. You have to crawl across this. You have to do that. Go to Mecca. Go. 
God doesn't want things hidden from you and I. He wants at least the things of Him. He doesn't want us to have to deal with certain things of the world and evil. But He wants Himself to be revealed to us. And that's what Revelation should ultimately do, is reveal Jesus to us. That yes, we see the future, we see the end, we see the state of the church. But most of all, we should see Jesus through it. The letters to seven churches again reveal that. The end of the world, the great tribulation, as they push the great reset, I just think they go hand in hand. Great reset, great tribulation. Uh, it's no coincidence in my mind. Uh, judgment on the nations. Remember, this is for the people who, despite everything, despite thousands of years of church history, despite the Holy Spirit's influence, despite the Bible, despite all the goodness of God that's come in the past 2,000 years, they still, followed, they still decide to follow Satan, and it's clearly Satan. They clearly go after him. They love evil, and they want everything that he has to offer through the Antichrist in this last time period. And with that, God gives the world a time to repent. Now God, again, like we said, didn't just wipe out the world. He gave them time to repent. Isn't that the Lord as gracious to us as we're going to see? Even John mentions that at the very end. We see a new creation, no more sin and death. And ultimately, we see heaven. That at the end of all this, God has to get through this really rough stuff through most of the book of Revelation to get to the very end to show us his home for us. This contrast between our current world, the world to be, and the world to come. That ultimately God wants us to be home with him. Because if you remember back to Genesis, God made this world as a home for us. I don't believe he made it as a home for him. I believe in a sense he made it as a place for himself to visit and spend time with us. The scripture says that uh, heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool, right? Now, I wouldn't make too much dogma out of uh, what I'm saying, but I feel like that there was this, uh, it wasn't quite heaven yet. It was earth. It was creation. It was wonderful and it was perfect before sin, but it wasn't his home. Heaven was his home. Earth was our home. But he knew that one day we would go home to be with him, that we wouldn't be separate from him anymore. As you remember, we saw in the past couple chapters with the new Jerusalem, with the new heaven and new creation, that God wants to make his home with us. That just like when Jesus came into the world, Emmanuel, God with us, it was ultimately to be with us. That's what God wants. God doesn't want gifts from us. God doesn't want works from us. He just simply wants to be with us. You know, my kids were asking what they should get their grandma or their mom. And as sweet as the ideas were, I'm like, you might not have enough money to do that. And you know what? I think your grandma might like more something that you make, something that's from you and special, right? And that's the same thing with God. God doesn't, God owns everything, right? He doesn't want us to spend all our money to give him a little piece of gold. He invented the gold atom. He holds the molecules together. He just wants to be with us. And so with that, let's get started and we shall pray together. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, that you do just want to be with us as we come upon Christmas. We can think about these things, about you coming to be with us and removing our sin and taking on flesh. But also, as we close Revelation in this time, it's nice to think about not only that, but that ultimately we get to be with you, God, forever. And that's uh, what I want us all to be looking forward to. That's what you want us all to be looking forward to. God, help us be more excited about it and ready for it. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read uh, a few verses together, 12 through 15. So Revelation chapter 22, verse 12 says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to give each one according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life they may enter through the gates into the city outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices 
a lie. Jesus says, look. That word look is look. It's simply look. It's behold, right? It's his command to look, right? We can, it's been said, right? You can hear with your ears, but you can, sometimes you're not listening, right? That's, I feel like that's the same connotation here. We can see with our eyes, but are we really looking? How many times do I go in the refrigerator and I look and I can't see the ketchup right in front of me? And I'm like, gosh, where's the ketchup? He's like, it's right in front of you, right? How, I feel really old lately. I keep losing my phone around the house. I'm a, I'm a creature of habit. I have to put things in the same place. Otherwise, I forget where I put them down. Uh, you know, I'll run upstairs real quick and I'll put it on a shelf I don't normally do or whatever it is. And the kids were helping me look the other day. It was right on my computer chair, uh, right where I last was. I think that's what Jesus would say to us is, look, look for me. I'm coming. The kids, they were practically breaking through the glass of the rear door looking for you guys. See when you'd show up, right? I remember when I was little, my dad, we lived in Florida. My dad took a job in Long Island. And so he would fly to New York uh, for the week and then fly back on Friday. I called it uh, happy day. And he'd come in on the whatever I picture as a yellow cab. But I don't know what color the St. Petersburg taxis were. I think they're red and white now. But it was happy day. The taxi would come down and I'd be looking for my dad and I'd run out to greet him. Right. And then eventually we uh, we moved to New Jersey. But that's the same thing. Right. With Jesus, we should be looking for him to look intently, to look interested, to be longing when we look, desiring when we look. Right. When I when Ash was coming down the aisle, I was like, yes, I'm looking at my bride. She's beautiful. She's coming. I can't believe this day is actually here. You know, imagine if I was like pulling out my phone. <laughs> Or giving a shout out to my friend while she's coming down the aisle, right? Uh, I probably would have gotten in trouble right away. (laughs) The pastor probably would have hit me on the head, right? But man, are we looking? We should be anticipating. Christmas is coming, the advent calendar. We're looking forward to it. I get frustrated with this one because it says sleep still, and that just confuses me for some reason. I can't get around it. I just miss the old advent calendars. But let's quickly turn to Matthew chapter 25 and read a few verses. You should be familiar with this area of Scripture. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. If I can find it. There we go. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. The parable of the ten virgins. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven shall be like ten virgins who took their lamps. Remember, these are young women out before a wedding feast, right? Who aren't married but are part of the, the, the procession. Think of those bridesmaids. Five of them wise and five of them were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps, but took no oil with them. But the wise took jars of oil with their lamps. And while the bridegroom delayed, they all rested and slept. Remember the, the ancient uh, biblical tradition or Jewish tradition of marriage was the groom would go out and begin to prepare rooms on his father's house or prepare a place for the bride. And he would just show up one day. <laughs> And they would go have the wedding. As soon as he was done building, the last nail would come in. He'd come in and grab everybody. So they're supposed to pay attention for that. He says, but at midnight, there was a cry. Look, the bridegroom is coming. Look, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps have gone out. And the wise answered, no, lest there not be enough for us and you. Go rather to those who sell it and buy some for yourselves. You know, go, go to the gas station on the corner. It's open 24 hours. See if they have any oil for you. But while they went out to buy some, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. 
Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. That Jesus has always been saying, look, I'm coming. Watch. Be ready. Have, your, have enough batteries for your flashlight. Have an extra gas can for your car because you don't know how far away this wedding feast is going to be. And our bridegroom is coming. We were telling the kids the other night the story of, uh, or Ash was sharing the story of the wedding before the wedding, how she and all the girls got ready. Uh, uh, you know, before a wedding, you'd want to be excited and dressed. She'd have her bags packed. We were going on a cruise the next day. If she didn't have her bad bags packed, we would have been trouble. We, we had a friend drive us to New York City. We stayed in a hotel for a couple hours. I went to take a plane to Miami to get on the cruise. And if she didn't have her bags packed, she would have had to wear her wedding dress down in wherever we, where were we? Caribbean? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was hot. The Caymans, it was hot down there. Very, very hot in April. I can't imagine what it's like in July. But she was ready. And she also had her stuff. She, her stuff at home was packed. She was not going to go home and live with her parents anymore. As much as maybe she wanted to. <laughs> she was not allowed to go home and live with her parents anymore. I'm just kidding. Uh, but sincerely, that's the way we should be. We should be packed. We should be dressed. We should be ready because we're not coming home to this house anymore. When Jesus comes back, I could care less about Montana. I love Montana. If I never see Montana again <laughs> when Jesus comes back, that's fine. But Jesus says that he has a reward with him when he comes. And it's a reward. It's not a gift. And as Christmas comes, we love to give gifts. We love to get things. I don't give gifts to my kids because they're, you know, maybe they'll get coal in their stocking. But they're good, so they don't get that. Even that's kind of a, might be a blessing nowadays. You know, cheaper heating bills, right? But it's out of love. They get their allowance. And I forgot to give you your allowance this week, I think. But they get their allowance because they do work. That's their reward for their work. At Christmas, they get gifts. And God gives us gifts out of love, right? He gives us this spiritual gifts. They're not spiritual rewards. I don't have, if I have the gift of teaching, I don't have it because I worked for it. I have it because God gave it to me. If you have the gift of hospitality or evangelism or whatever it is, or administration, it's because God decided to give it to you. It's not because you're worthy of it. The Bible says, who is worthy of these things? None of us is worthy of it. I'm not worthy to be up here. But there's a reward. And there is a reward for our work done by the Spirit, done by the gifts, or done just to do it for the Lord. And Jesus has rewards for those. And this word work is business, employment, by which one is occupied, any product, anything accomplished by hand, art, industry, or mind, act, deed, thing done. The idea of working is emphasized, right? That Jesus says, I have rewards for your work. And a lot of the church is some branches of the so-called church are caught up in works. And that's not what we're talking about. James talks about show me your faith by your works and works by faith. That's a whole study. This is not works for salvation. This is works from salvation. This is not works to get into heaven. It's works because you're going to heaven. It's works because Jesus died for you and I. Jesus died, of course, is worthy for me. Everything else is trash, Paul says. And some of the church is really caught up also in doing things as well as they can. And in a sense, I get that. But in a sense, I also get there should be perfectly imperfect works for God. But I understand wanting to excel and do things as well as you can is for God, right? Why would, it, why would you do it lesser? And I had this thought the other day. I have lots of weird thoughts. I'm weird. But maybe it was on a Zoom call. I don't know. Um, for work. But I think about all these people who are around my age, who are very successful, very smart, uh, very wealthy, have a lot of things together. 
And that's good. That's honorable. That's admirable in ways. But I wonder, at the end of their lives, what's it worth? You know, I think about, well, I haven't accomplished too much in life. But at least I've done some things for the Lord. At least I feel like I'm living for the Lord. We'll see what happens when we get there. How faithful I was or not. But I think about the end of your life and you go, okay, yeah, I did all these great things, but now my life's over. I ran this successful business or I made all this money, but I didn't have that relationship with my kids. <laughs> you know, like, what do they have at the end of the day? Is it worth it? Will there be a reward for it and for that without the Lord in it? No. And I'm not saying that having a business, being successful, all these things in the world's eyes is wrong. It's not. Because I've known many believers who are very successful in business, but their underlying aim was always to bring glory to God, was always to advance the gospel, and God blessed them. God gave them big businesses. God allowed them to employ other people. And mostly, God allowed them to send others, that their calling in life was not to go, their calling in life was to send. And they funded orphanages or funded missionaries or funded churches out of the abundance that God gave them through their business. In Luke 28, uh, two, sorry, not 28, Luke 2, 48 to 49, says, when they saw Jesus, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this? So remember, Jesus was still a boy at this time. And they were there for the feast. And they left and they thought that Jesus was with their relatives. And they found out after the first day he wasn't there. And they finally found him. And they said, look, your father and I have looked for you anxiously for three days. And Jesus said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And I think I always glossed over this every time I read it or heard it before. But they were one day of travel away, and it took them three days to find him. So they went a day away, it took them a day back to get Jerusalem, and then they looked around for two whole days. Poor FedEx guys deliver on Sunday. I don't even know what's coming today. But probably. So don't go outside later. <laughs> I'll go out there first. But they traveled for two days. They travel a day back. They travel for two days. Remember, they're sleeping. Maybe they got a hotel. I don't know how much it costs them. Maybe they're sleeping on the side of the road. They're getting up looking for Jesus everywhere they went. And it took them three days to find him in the temple. It was probably, you know, it's always the thing you're looking for is always in the last place you look, right? Jesus was in the last place they looked. And it was the temple. Why did they not know to find him there? He said, did you not know? I had to be about my father's business. I wasn't at dad's shop. I wasn't at the tool store. I wasn't hanging out with my friends. I was in the temple. Jesus said, doing what my dad, my father would have me do. You know, that whole father's son doing the father's business is a big thing. I would love for my kids to uh, ha take on a business that I start. I would love for that or do the business that I'm involved with. But do those around us know where to find us? I mean, this is too simple, but do they know that we're in the word of God, right? My boss knows where to find me. He's got my cell phone. He's got my Zoom. I'm on chat. He can find me whenever he needs me, even though I'm miles away. But do people know that they can come to us and ask for prayer? Do they know that we are regularly in God's presence, whether they necessarily believe it 100% or not, think we're weird or not, it's a different story. Do they know they can ask us about a question of the Bible because they know that we know what the Bible says? Not that we're experts, not that we know every last thing, but do they know that we know a little bit better than they do, that we might have a way for them? When they need help spiritually or practically, do they know they can come to us? Do our neighbors know they can come to us if they need anything? That we're a good neighbor? That we're a good employee? Don't look out there, kiddos. You don't know what it is. Don't make me return it. <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you. But are we about our father's business? 
When they look at our lives, they know why we do the things that we do. Or are we just weird and homeschool our kids? Just for some reason. Payday, bonuses, right? Like we talked about the um, allowance for my kids. I look forward to those days because I've done the work. Things have been extra busy at work lately. We've had a lot of pitches. All these, it seems that when it rains, it pours. And then I had a bunch of coworkers, my boss and some other creative people had to work last weekend on Thanksgiving weekend, which is rare. And I don't know why all of a sudden we're starting to do that. But go figure, right? Isn't that the flesh to like demand that and want that and expect that? And then we got to notice yesterday, was it yesterday? No, Friday, that they pushed out the deadline. The client pushed out the deadline by a week. I'm like, wouldn't you have liked to have known that last weekend, right? That's how the flesh works, right? But that's when the payday comes, when that end of year bonus comes after hard work all year, you look forward to it because you worked. Yeah, you guys go watch over good. Have fun. And if we're not looking forward to Jesus' return, if we're not looking forward to his return, his reward in his hand, I have to wonder, are we lacking somewhere in our work? Are we not doing the work? Are we not expecting a reward? Do we realize that we're just faking it and we're not actually putting in the time and so we don't necessarily think we deserve a reward? If you do anything for the Lord, you deserve the reward. God, God wants to give it to you. Don't let him not. But when I go out to the barn or I go out to my truck and start the truck, I always say hi to the chickens and to the bunnies. My neighbors would think I was really crazy and it would probably be embarrassing if you heard the voice I use sometimes. And I catch, I'm like, why am I talking like this? But even the chickens come running when I come out there. They don't really know me, but they come running. And I went in the other day. I was wondering if they were going to peck me because I hadn't been there in a while, and they didn't. But they come running to me selfishly just in case I decide to give them a little extra scratch. And I don't always do it, but sometimes I do. And I tell them, don't always expect this when I come over. But I give them to them. They go, oh, go pecking and eat it and love it. But I still want them to be running to me, even if it's selfish. I appreciate when the animals appreciate me or need me for something, as weird as that is and as little as that is. And even if I didn't have my reward with me, right? If, if they didn't always come over to me, if I had a reward one day, they would never receive it. And I think even in the most basest fleshly sense, God just wants us to come to him. Even if it's just God, just give me some more scratch. Let me just peck a little bit more. Let me get a little extra in my paycheck. Let me get a little extra time, whatever it is. God wants to be able to give that to us. But we're not going to get it if we don't come to him, if we don't look for him, if we don't just spend a little bit of time with him. And he's gracious. He's, he's ministered to me in times. I remember, I think it was Spider-Man 2 came out in the movie theater. Or maybe it was 3. I remember seeing it in the theater. And I was going through something in life and the Lord spoke to me through it. <laughs> Right? I'm not going to say go watch Tobey Maguire and God speaks through Tobey Maguire. But God used it because he was faithful to meet me even when I wasn't looking for him necessarily. Right? Because I was so stressed about something. I had to get my mind off it. But Jesus is everything, right? He's the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning and the end, the scripture says. That God made everything. He made you and I. He holds everything together, but he also ends everything. That Jesus, when it's time for something to end, it's the right time. So when Jesus comes back, as long as it feels, it's the right time. Peter talks about people are in last days, scoffers will come and say, where's the promise of his coming? You know, <laughs> he's not coming back. It's been so long. Well, they're prophesied of that God's timing is right. And when he ends something in our lives, when he begins something in our lives, for whatever reason, or allows it to happen, it's for a reason. The Bible says the end is better than the beginning. As fun as 
I really enjoyed. We went through Genesis a few years ago, and it was a great study. I learned a lot. Uh, I felt like I saw it in new ways. But the end is better than the beginning. I think Revelation is a million times better than, than Genesis, and I'm, I'm weird like that. But in our lives, the end is better somehow. It's better. The day I graduated high school was far better than the day I started high school. But it's all in God's time, and it's all in God's way, and it's all with His Word, that He is these things. He is the beginning. He is the end. And when he says something is true, we should take notice and listen. And he says, blessed are those who do his commandments, John says. Blessed are those who do God's commandments. You know, the priests, they wore linen. They were not to wear heavy wool. They were meant to be able to go go about and do their work and not sweat crazily all day. There's nothing worse than when I think it's super cold out. I wear my long johns. I wear my heavy socks. I wear my insulated boots. And I get out and I'm sweating by the time I get to the car. I'm like, I got to go. I'm not going to go back in and change. I got to go through all this, all my stuff. And it's, and then at the same time, when I go out to the shop and I think it's not going to be that cold and it's, I'm freezing, you know, under the car in the dirt. And God doesn't want us to be that way. He wants us to be happy when we serve him. Not a, oh man, I got to go serve God. Or, oh, this is the worst serving him. And don't do it. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. But I guarantee if you do it, even if you think it's going to be awful, which it might be at times, know that you're going to find joy in it. Know that you're going to find rest, that you're going to be blessed through it. Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Are these the commandments of God? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Sometimes being merciful to someone is no fun. But you're blessed through it, and you can find blessing in it. Man, I, I find more blessing in, in giving mercy to my kids than having to corporally punish them, but sometimes I have to. But man, it's, it's much more of a blessing when the opportunity comes to give them mercy or grace. But I can't always do that. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, uh, blessed is the, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. That's going to happen more and more in our days. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Jesus says here that part of that blessing is the right to the tree of life. That's an interesting statement. The right to the tree of life. You know, we have rights, God-given inalienable rights, we would say, and the Constitution is supposed to uphold them, right? It's supposed to protect us from those who would take our life, liberty, and freedom away. Well, God says, as a believer, part of your reward is the right to a tree of life. You had no right to it before. It was in the garden, in creation, there's a tree of life, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God said, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> you're not going to like it, because in that day, you're going to die. But you can eat from the tree of life. You can keep eating from that tree. You can eat from it all day. You're never going to get fat. You're never going to get tired. You're never going to eat too much. You're not going to get cavities. You're going to live and live forever when you eat from this tree of life. And this is the trees that we see in the new heaven lining uh, the river. But we didn't have a right to it. When we ate from that tree of knowledge of good and evil, God had to cut off the tree of life from us. He put the angels in with the flaming swords to keep you from getting there. The flood came, wiped out the whole region, right? Because God knew if we ate from that tree, after eating from the tree of knowledge and evil, we would be stuck in a way, in a sense, in our sin. That we could live forever in a fallen state separated from him. I don't know how that works, but that's 
You know, if you put one and one together in a simple lens, that's kind of the way it looks. And Jesus did not want us, God bless you, to eat from that tree of life if we'd be separated from him. God bless you. There's tissues over there if you need them on the window. Um, but there's no way for us to eat from that tree again. There's no ticket we can get. There's no jumping the fence to heaven. Those walls are high, right? There's no climbing over the wall. There's no digging under. There's no bribing the gatekeeper. You know, the Catholic image of St. Peter at the pearly gates. We can't slip him a fiver and get in. There's no scalping of tickets outside. I remember going to Devil's Games growing up and people are scalping all the time. Uh, you saw that, was it Taylor Swift, $90,000 Ticketmaster tickets or something? Insane. She's not that good. Uh, but no forgery could get us in. No forgery could get us to eat from this tree of life. People are trying to live forever. Even, was it Jared Kushner was talking about he's going to live forever. Uh, I wouldn't want to eat from the tree of life in this state. I don't, who would want it in this fallen world? Death should be a blessing. But Jesus is that only way in, John 14, 6. And outside of the city, away from the tree of life, is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And for a moment there, like that Peter image, I want to picture, have us picture walking through the pearly gates. Uh, I remember, you know, growing up in New Jersey and New York, we were, New York City was commonplace to us, right? It's a, huge, it's a big city, tall skyscrapers, but been going there since I was a kid. My dad worked there. We rode the subway. We went, you know, we went and visited it. It wasn't a big deal. We didn't walk around and, you know, look up. That's how you could tell who the tourists were. The tourists were the ones who had the maps. The tourists were the ones who looked up, and the tourists were the ones who took every flyer that was given to them on the city or stood around and got pickpocketed in Times Square before they cleaned it up, right? That was the tourist. And if that's your first time in New York City, that's fine, but growing up there, it was always like, oh, there's another tourist. And if I go in with people who are tourists, I'm like, don't make me look like a tourist. Don't you look up. <laughs> I remember my kids went there to see uh, Ash's dad when uh, he was in the hospital in New York City um, for treatment. And they were amazed by the tall buildings. Uh, they had never seen anything like that before. But imagine that. That's us. And we're going. And we see these pearly gates. We're the tourists. <laughs> Looking up. They're amazing. I mean, can you imagine pearls and jewels and foundations of this amazing city? There's no, uh, again, there's no Peter there at the gate with his halo. Uh, it's not just some gates as a comic strip might depict on some clouds. But it's this tangible, beautiful city. Can you imagine what it's going to feel like to walk in there? Like the first time you walk in New York City, but you're not afraid of being robbed and you don't smell the smells of New York City in the summertime? Don't go in the subway. But these huge, magnificent doors, these shimmering gold streets, this warm, radiant light everywhere. There's singing, there's laughing, there's talking, there's hugging, people going in and out, jumping, rejoicing, uh, being reunited. I'd even imagine in some sense maybe there's birds flying or maybe it's just angels flying all over worshiping and, and there's a feast and you can smell the food. But that's where God wants us to be. That that's the destination. It's not this cold, pearly gates, this empty cloud with a harp. It's this warm, wonderful destination in this beautiful paradise. When we went out to get the Christmas tree, the kids when we were in the woods were like, oh, it's paradise, it's paradise, it's paradise out here in the woods. I'm like, it is. But that's what it's going to be like. And that's our destination. That's the end game. That's the end goal for us. That's where God wants us to end up. God doesn't want us to end up in hell. God doesn't necessarily, I mean, he cares one way, but he doesn't necessarily care where you end up in life, so to speak, as long as you end up in heaven. And verse 15 says, 
outsider dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices a lie. I don't want to focus on those things, but dogs were like the unbelievers and, you know, really Gentiles and everything. They weren't, that's what the Jews called them. But all those things that believe in a sense are lies. All these things are not the truth. To be sexually immoral, that's not the truth. That's not the way God designed it. To murder, that's obviously not the truth. God is life, right? It's all things that are masquerading as the truth. In our day and age, all these lies masquerade as the truth. And people latch onto them as if it is the truth. And we talk to it ad nauseum. And when I see these things take deep root, such deep root, in people and society, they're given over to it, even in the church, it's hard to keep it out of my home. I should probably just throw out all the TVs, except for the video games. I just throw out all the internet. But it makes me long for heaven even more. It makes me want to go home even more. I just want to go home. And that home is not here. It's not the Bitterroot. It's not New York. Maybe it's Cayman Islands in the summer. I don't know. But my home is not here. And it's more evident every single day. I think I mentioned it later. Oh, here, we do have it right here. Yesterday, well, last week, Thanksgiving, we took Christmas pictures. We took some outside. We took some when we got the tree to make our card and get our annual family photo. And I'm editing the photo on the computer yesterday. Uh, most of the kids are up here, Bia and uh, Ash are downstairs, and Ash starts to look for our Christmas cards to, you know, to buy online where you stick your photo in and you order them. And she's like, Mia, you can't, I'm sorry, you can't be here. You got to go upstairs. Because the things that they're even trying to do when you look just to order Christmas cards is disgusting. It's abominable, God would say. And when, when, when my wife and family can't even try and pick out a Christmas card and i got to start designing one, it's kind of the last thing I want to do. I work all week. last thing I want to do is design something else. What is that? We're not at home there. I can't take my kids to a hockey game, you know, maybe a, a state game, but not an NHL game the ads, the things that they promote even now. It's not my home. My own country, in a sense, is not my home anymore. As much as I would love America to be my home, it's not. Some of it is. I know that there's a lot of people like me who feel the same way. But it's more and more evident every day. But these people are outside. They're not outside of heaven. It's not like heaven has, I don't know, a place for unbelievers to hang out. But they're in hell. But they're kept out. And the point is that they don't have entry to this place. That there's no access in. Like there's that gulf fixed we talked about in uh, Gehenna. That there's that space that Abraham's bosom you couldn't get across. There's no way in. They are in hell. And they too are receiving the reward for their works. Psalm 73. I won't read the whole thing, but check it out later. It's the Psalm of Asaph. It's great to remember and read in this. And he talks about how he almost stumbles when he goes into the temple, because he sees how profitable everyone is who's wicked, and he's trying to do the right thing, and nothing's going right for him, and he's not getting ahead. And everyone who's doing the wrong thing gets ahead and gets money and gets right and gets fame and gets fortune. And then he says, I, it was too under, I couldn't understand it. It was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. And I'm sure I've quoted this before because I love it. He understands their end. That there's no reward for the wicked in the next life. That they have no place in the kingdom of God. But he, despite all the rough things he's got to go through in this world, he's got a home. He's got a place. And he's got an eternal reward. 
So let's go on. Verse 16 and 17 says, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who is thirsty, come. Let him who desires take the water of life freely. Does that remind you of Jesus with the woman at the well saying, I have water of life for you that you not know of. Drink of it and you'll never thirst again. And Jesus says, I've sent my angel here. And this angel word angel means messenger. That's what angels are. They're messengers. But he's talking of John here. That John received a message from Jesus for us. He received a message of Jesus for the church and for the world and for the end. That John went to heaven for this purpose, to get this message, to give this to us. That's a big deal. That this book is for us and for the world. And John went on a journey to get it and receive it for us. It was taken on one. He didn't choose it. But Jesus says, I like this. You know, Jesus always loved being called the son of man, the son of David, right? That he just had this passion to be called these things, to be related to his people. He like took joy in being related to humanity, to be a part of the throne of this guy, David, who was a failure in many ways, but loved God. Jesus loved that. And he says here at the end, he says, I'm the root and offspring of David. And he promised David that your throne would be forever. And the Messiah would sit on it because he made Israel. God made Israel. God made David to be the king. God made the throne line. And he also was born of the bloodline, as we see in the Gospels, that he, in his earthly flesh from Mary and even Joseph, uh, at least in lineage and rights from Joseph, came through David. You know, there's a commentary, David Guzik's commentary, talks about the bright and morning star, and it says that this is another messianic title from the Old Testament in Numbers. Uh, but he says, just as the morning star which people believe to be Venus, shines and welcomes the new day, so does Jesus. That man, when it's dark, darkest before dawn, they say, we look for that morning star, we look for that hope of the morning, and that's Jesus. That things are dark, things are going to get even darker if you can imagine it. <laughs> it's hard to imagine how much darker, oh, I can't get any darker than this. And then you read the news the next day, and you're like, well, that's way darker than it was yesterday. And then the next day, and then the next day. And without the light of Jesus, they're cutting out the word of God. They're cutting out Christians' influence. This new law that they're passing about marriage equality is really awful. It's really going to put us all in a lot of hurt. Uh, churches and in businesses and at work, they're getting rid of our influence and making it illegal for our influence to be in that sector. But Jesus is our hope and he's our path through the night. God says his word guides us in the night seasons, I believe David said. But it says here that the spirit and the bride say come. That it's God's desire for Jesus to return. And it should also be the church's desire for Jesus to return. That God's, if it's God's desire, it should obviously be our desire. The things that God desires are the things that we should desire. Because he gives us our desires. Our holy desires come from him. They're not of ourselves. The love for our children, the love for good, the, the want to just come and hang out and hear God's word on a couch on a Sunday morning. That desire is wanting to know God's word, and that comes from God, wherever it takes you. You know, my wife and I were talking the other night about death and how just interesting it is that someone just goes away. They're here one minute, and then they're gone. Even when their body's still here, they are not in it. They are not there. And we talked about how, you know, you were, grew up Catholic before, and just the thoughts you had about it, you know, I just got your wings and your angel, and it was just this abstract thing. And me growing up in the church, but not knowing the Lord till I grew up, um, 
always knowing the truth, but still being disconnected from it, knowing that people went to heaven or hell and that I just didn't have that intimate knowledge of it. But now just this intimate reality knowledge that this is where we're going. And that's where people go. That it's, it's still weird. It's still hard to grasp. We're not meant to understand death, really. But it's going to happen whether we like it or not. And it should bring us joy as believers. I find more relief, and as weird as it is, I'm not suicidal or anything like that. I just think, oh, you know, other than for my family, right? I concerns for them. But I think, well, oh, man, death would be a relief. Death would be, wow, get out of here. Get to go home, get to heaven, never have to deal with this anymore. It's sad when people who don't have the Lord turn to death for that. And they, on the other side, there's not relief. You know, Canada is now making it legal for assisted suicide. Oh, you're too expensive to care for. Why don't you just kill yourself? Okay. It's not a joke. But even then, because things are going to happen whether we like it or not, because Jesus is coming back whether we like it or not, why would we not get on board from it? Even just in that selfish chicken looking for the scratch manner, it's the truth. I might as well just go along with it, right? That's sometimes what keeps me going. It's just going, I know there's no other way. So I got to keep going. I can't turn around. Where am I going to go? This is the only way. Let's go on to verse 18 through 21, and we will close out Revelation here. John says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God shall add to them the plagues that are written in this book. That's sobering. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and out of the things which are written in this book. He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming soon. John says, Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That John and the Lord really here are not playing around. That this set of scripture at the very end, you know, you skip ahead in the book, right? You go read the last page without reading all the middle. If you read this last page and read this last paragraph, that should be pretty sobering. If you add to it, add to Revelation, you want to go through the Great Tribulation? Well, start changing what Revelation says. Start messing with Scripture. If you want to take away from Revelation, you don't like what it says here, you're going to go through it too. It's this weird thing about faith and about consequences and the way God works and punishment and other things because if you start taking away from it, you never believed it in the first place, so you're kind of giving your own destiny to it, right? You're saying, I don't believe it, so you're signing your own death warrant, so to speak. And same thing with God. God's saying that these words are true. These words are important. Don't mess with them. I don't see that anywhere else in the Bible. Jesus doesn't say that before the cross. Hey, if you don't believe me, he's saying, no, forgive them. They don't know what they do. But here he's saying, you know exactly what you're doing when you're taken away. I want you to know exactly what you're doing when you're twisting my word. And that's the tactic of the enemy, isn't it? Not since the Garden of Eden to twist God's word by adding or taking away. Did God really say you're going to die? You're not going to die. And yeah, they didn't die physically right away. They died spiritually right away. Isn't that what false teachers do, right? They take certain scriptures out. What bad translations do, they change words that are too offensive for our day and age, or they cut out whole scriptures. But God's word is complete. God's word is complete from beginning to end, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, every word. And for those who edit God's word, I think they really just think that they know better about God that they're putting themselves in the place of God. For me to take anything out of this book and change it, is saying, I know better than God. God said this, but you know what? To make it more better for you, I know better than God. Come listen to me. Let me change it for you. 
And that's a risk of teaching too, that there's a greater, it's not punishment, what is the word? Yeah, greater responsibility for teaching the word. There's a greater judgment is what it is actually. That there's a greater judgment that I as a believer face the same things everything else, but because I've accepted some responsibility and call to teach the word, right or wrong, I have to think about that. That's sobering. One day God's going to go, remember that time you gave that message and you said that thing? Well, it really sent that person off on the wrong path. And that's not what I meant by that. And okay, Lord, and I lose out, right? There's a responsibility to that. And that should be the same responsibility for the whole word. For us to come to it and say, ah, I don't like what the New Testament says. I don't like what the Old Testament says. Jesus never said that about whatever. That's the responsibility. Jesus said himself in Matthew 5, 17 through 19, part of it says, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will pass away from the law until it's all fulfilled. Then not one comma, not one apostrophe, not one word, not one period, not one dot in the eye is being taken out of God's word. That's it. And so John, I believe, speaks of the Revelation, the book of this prophecy, but I believe he also, in a sense, it can encompass the entire Bible because how many cults have added or taken away the Bible? Like I said, false teachers, translations that cut phrases. You know, I always recommend a translation to be heady about it is from the Textus Receptus, this larger, older set of texts that was more accurate and believed to be more accurate versus the Alexandrian text, which came from a group of believers who weren't so hardcore in their beliefs. And they went off in Gnosticism and everything else. So I prefer things like the King James versus the NIV. There's verses in the NIV that aren't there. It's not, you know, I've had plenty. I grew up in the NIV. I had people I knew at NIV. Fine. But if you're trying to, like, actually think about it and split hairs there, why would you want something that's a, potentially a little off versus not? Again, that's not a salvation issue, but I just take it to that nth degree there. And as we close, as these last two verses are here, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. But that's his last words about us. This isn't a verse. That's John's words. But Jesus' last words to us are, Surely I am coming soon. The very last thing that he says in the Bible, he's coming soon. The very last words written of Jesus in red in your Bible, if you have a red letter version, is this. And I like that John agrees with that. He says, Amen. Let it be so. But he also says, Even so, Come, Lord Jesus. And I think he says that because he thinks about all the people. John was the apostle of love, right? He started all his churches. He wrote to the churches about loving one another. He thinks about the murderers, idolaters, everyone who practices a lie, who's not going to make it in. The, we read last week about, you know, uh, where is it about, you know, there's not enough time, right? If you're unrighteous, be unrighteous still. If you're righteous, be righteous still. That even so... Even so, all these things must end. Even though there's a time of grace that's going to end, even so, come Lord Jesus. The, John wants him to come. He's crying out for him to come. Remember, think about John. He was a disciple. He saw Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He saw him die. He was at the Last Supper. He was an apostle. He went out. He started churches. He wrote the Gospels. He wrote all this stuff in the, in the Bible. He's attempted to be martyred, as church history would say. He's thrown to this island of Patmos. He sees Jesus in his old age. He's brought to heaven. He's given a message. He sees the end times. And then he has to go back and write it all down. And wouldn't you be filled with such longing for his return? Oh, Lord. 
you know, you had seen him, you were on the boat, you were walking with him, the waters were calm. And then to go to heaven. This is awesome. Look at this. Angels, you know, see the future. And then to go back on that island in your old frail body, you got to write things down. Can you even see? Oh, even so, come Lord Jesus. Take me home, Lord. Thank you that I can write this. I have to come back to write this. What a blessing to have to write this, that your words get to be at the end of this, to say, come Lord Jesus. And so if we've read it, if we've studied it, if we've believed it, shouldn't that be our cry too? Even so, come Lord Jesus. And I love how John reminds us of God's grace today. And he says, you can't just, John just can't get away without saying that at the end. I, I, the Lord obviously wanted him to read it, but I feel like John was like, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. He's always got to give his grace at the end. He's got to remind people of God's grace. And that should be a comfort, especially after this book, especially after the judgment, that God's grace is greater. God's grace is for you and I. That when we've sinned, God still wants to give you a gift. Because it's not based on your works. It's not based on your successes, your failures, what you've done right, what you've done wrong. Don't continue in the sin, for sure. Repent, but get up and let God's grace carry you. Because the time is near. We're obviously experiencing those birth pangs now. The church needs to get herself ready, and she's not going to get herself ready through works. She's got to get herself ready through grace because he's coming, and he's coming soon. And like John, I hope we all can say amen. And amen to this study, and that we would say, Lord Jesus, come soon, Lord. We pray at the end of all this, God, come soon. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Please, God, bring people to know you. But most of all, we want you to come soon. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So may God bless you and keep you and His face shine upon you. And may His grace be with you all. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until